Hi, and thanks for welcoming us back into your ears. I know that this is episode 19 of our podcast, but I'm pretty unsure as to everything else. Day, date, month. And even though there's a cautious reopening in the UK with some people returning to work, there's also a haze of uncertainty too. Uh, Should I go back to the office? Can I go shopping? Restaurants? Go on holiday? For now, though, the sun is shining, and thanks to the power of the internet, we have been able to visit people virtually and bring those conversations to you. And in this episode, we catch up with two leaders, one in the beauty space and the other in electricals and white goods. Off then, first of all, to New York to chat with Aaron Winslow, the head of e-commerce at the Hutt Group USA. Aaron's had a varied and global career to date, from teaching English in China to running APAC Americas and Europe for MyProtein, from arranging street food markets to running e-commerce for the Hutt. I met Aaron last year in New York, but sadly the current visit was virtual only. It's just the hum of the aircon that gives away the New York location. Now, Aaron was speaking to me just before the Hut released their 29 results, showing an impressive 24% increase in sales, which have now reached just over £1.1 billion. Most impressively, the increase in profit at 22% mirrors the trading growth, and the international markets contributed some 66% of sales. So with that info in our heads, let's pick up the discussion with Aaron. Hey, Aaron, thank you for joining us from New York. I'm just realizing it's um, particularly early for you, so I, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Hey, Tim, it's all right. <laughs> good, good. Now, um, a very strong American accent, so maybe we should just tell people, uh, first off, what you do and then how you ended up being in New York. So I am the head of e-commerce for the USA beauty sites for the Hut Group. I've been working for the Hut Group for about five, nearly five and a half years now. I joined the business in the UK for four years to work on the sports nutrition arm of the business. Spent some time developing the business around Asia and Europe and uh, then took a jump into a different arm of the business, into the beauty division and ended up working in New York for the last year and a half. Wow. And you know, what a time in New York as well with um, you know, <laughs> lockdown, the excitement. I mean, we met, uh, must be the end of last year, and it, the place was buzzing. I mean, you know, New York is always a great place, but, you know, we were doing some store tours down in Soho, and it was just a real beacon of retail experience. It's packed full of people. Uh, and now when we see on the news, you know, it's uh, empty streets. So an incredible change in six months. Yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting time to be here. I guess I've been a little disappointed with uh, the limitations that we've that we've had over the last few months um, from a personal level, but it has been a really interesting environment to be a part of. I think we're, we're a lot more in it right in the middle of the city, living on Manhattan, than maybe we were in South Manchester. But um, uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been very interesting to watch. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the beauty business in the US then, because you know we know. Rather, we think we know the hut, but it is actually a massive business, one of the UK's unicorns that snapped up lots of either digital businesses or businesses out of administration that have then, you know, been reborn online. So it's, I don't say sprawling, because that that sounds uh, as if I'm condemning it, but it's a wide, (laughs) a wide business uh, with everything from 
I want one of those, which uh, I used to love, to protein, to beauty. So tell us firstly how, how the beauty business looks and then how it fits into the sort of umbrella of hut groupness. The hut group originally started as, if I'm not mistaken, before my time, it was uh, a, a DVD and CD retailer. Um, yes. And it was and it was all online. So um, and it was white labeling. That was the thing. And so white they labeling, were like the yeah, digital right. pioneers for so, companies with bricks and mortar. Yeah, absolutely. And it was always a tech first company. So I think that the company is really framed as a is a tech company that happens to do retail rather than an online retail company. And if you think of it that way, you start to understand some of the scale that the Hut Group has been able to achieve. So. Um, a lot of people are using Shopify or Magento um, as their e-commerce platforms. But from very early on, the Hut Group built its own content management system. It built its own data analytics platform. Um, everything has been built internally. And then it's taken that out and expanded it into uh, various other divisions and businesses. And as you start to acquire businesses, uh, which is how, how the beauty business started for the Hut Group, as you start to acquire businesses, you, you, you're able to plug in all of these parts that you've built yourself into a business which otherwise has a lot of overheads. So you strip out these overheads um, into businesses that are either, uh, in, as you say, administration or, or struggling on a profit level and, and bring it into the Hut Group. And it becomes, becomes a very profitable business very quickly because of the ease that the Hut Group can cut out overheads. If you and I just said, hey, let's launch a beauty business, you know, we could go to platforms like Shopify or using Amazon platforms, we could get going, but we wouldn't be as successful as the Hutch <laughs> Group has been at it. So is there a secret ingredient that is more than just scale and momentum? Is, is there something they can bring that I wouldn't be able to access even if I had the technology under my thumb? <laughs> it's an interesting one. I mean, the the business is, you know, it's, it's fought and it's fought over the last few years. And um I think that there is absolute grit um, in the founders of the business as well. But I do believe that the structure of the business that has been built, those key foundations at this level, um, when we're talking about this scale, those foundations have to have been there. It sounds so simple as just, you know, just put the foundations down. But to have the commitment really to to take that that decision so early on where it would have been otherwise cost effective to do something else. Yes. Um, to see that the, the foresight for 10, 15 years down the line to to be able to have all of the things that you need built um, all in place. Mm. That that really is a huge decision in itself that that shouldn't shouldn't be overlooked. It's it's years of work that that one little sentence of build your own tech um, yes. <laughs> goes into that. Right. Now, before beauty, uh, my protein. Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I see that mainly as something for um, sports nutrition, weightlifters, people managing the performance aspect of their eating. That's my perspective, I'm sure I'm yeah. wrong, but uh, it does strike me as somewhat different to beauty. So what was that shift of gears like as you move away from protein you know, to the beauty market? How, how was that? I take it back a step. It's actually less different than you think. I mean, I mean other than the, the very much case of skincare and makeup being more about uh, 
it, it's it's all about wellness and it's all about health and and lifestyle and, and wellness. I mean, perhaps not so much health in the terms of makeup sector, but the the, the type of marketing that that we're trying to do um, all across the business is really appealing to a wellness and a lifestyle. We're trying to incorporate all of the brands together as as part of one person's journey. So, mm. the sports nutrition business has actually developed just a go off topic here for a second, but it's developed quite a lot in the last 10 years. You know, 10 years ago, I would have agreed with you. It really is for people who are working out, who are going to the gym, who are weightlifters. But now it has become a really broad industry where you've got people, casual users, a lot of light casual users who are interested in keeping healthy, who are going to the gym. And they're, they're not interested, the imagery that they're using, you know, we're, we're not using big muscly bodybuilders we're just using regular looking normal healthy looking people that kind of approach to to marketing in the beauty sense is very similar you know we're not looking for people who are absolutely crazy about every shade of of eyeshadow and making sure that they have a a perfect 12-step skincare routine it gets to a point where you try to appeal both to niche and to mass and that combines into a very similar approach with wellness how does that change the way the business is from, you know, the old days would be, you know, hire someone famous to be the global face of the brand, sign up at pilot department stores, and then wait for Christmas and birthdays and sell as much as you can. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sort of you know, making a parody yeah. really, but uh, what are the dynamics of the beauty sector now? So I think for the online business, you still have the influences, so to speak, um, that are important. However, I think it's um, quite known now that it's not necessarily just the macro influences, as you describe them, that are the most important. But you've also got anybody who can be an Instagram, uh, Insta-famous with 50,000 people on their Instagram. It's not just necessarily these people who are who are sporting 5 million, 10 million followers that are going to cost you a pretty penny. But it's also the smaller people along the way that are making an impact on the world mm. um, and making an impact on on the people that are buying your products. In working through those influencers, that must change your marketing to a much more hands-on and listening approach as well. So rather than one global campaign, you must have dozens, hundreds, thousands of influencers to manage as well, like sort of super stakeholders. Uh, yes, there. So the, I guess there are some um, approaches in the business that are perhaps new to the business that nobody else has done. But we really are figuring it out as we go and testing and learning and trying to see what can work. Yeah. Now, speaking of working, you know, there've been many weeks of lockdown now. During that lockdown, quite a few online businesses have managed to sustain their level of activity. I mean, how has the lockdown been for you guys? Yeah, it's um, it's been a uh, it's been a very fortunate time for the business. I think the beauty industry overall in the US has, uh, from the numbers that we've seen, shrunk in size, but it has moved online. So we've we've seen some good business over the last few weeks. I think it's starting to uh, change back as some of, in the US at least, as some of the rural states have opened. We've seen as well that that rural business start to move back to stores and drop off a little bit. Mm. Yeah, otherwise it's been a, a, a relatively positive time. I think the company's very proud not to have for the online business, not furloughed any of the staff. And mm. in fact, we've we've just hired a, a new a couple of new people into the US team over the last two weeks. 
So it's it's business as usual. Have you found hiring? Because when I speak to people, the general consensus is that literally everything can be managed, at least for a while, with virtual contact. But the one bit that we all seem to find more difficult is hiring people and doing the hiring over a Zoom call or something. So once I know you, I'm happy to chat to you and we know each other well enough to work. But if I don't know you, how do you hire? So how has how's hiring been and, and what has been the most difficult thing of, of remote working? To be honest, it's um, a case of there is no other choice. You know, mm-hmm. um, you make do with what you have. And I, I agree that I would probably like to meet somebody in person before um, before you, you get to you get a bit more understanding of their body language and their their persona and the, the way they hold themselves and it's uh, as long as you're hiring somebody that you really trust uh, i don't think in that regard there's anything or that you that you have trust in or you you've they've given you the re- a reason to trust you in in the interview process but mm. really it's just had to be over interview we make do um you don't quite get the same feel uh, yeah. as you say what has been difficult about the remote working it's not a social um it's not a social thing here it's difficult. I think the, the most difficult, uh, I think, as anyone will agree, is probably group meetings where um, you really get this this overlap of people talking or one person tries to speak or somebody spends 10 minutes trying to figure out how to get their screen on on the screen. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's not a it's not particularly a social thing. I am a social person. I am a, a, an extrovert, self-proclaimed. And um, I like the, the atmosphere of the office, the the vibe you get when when things are going well, the the talk yeah. of shouting across the room to somebody when you need something that you want everybody else to hear, you know, um, yeah, that's my it's my wheelhouse. So you know, hopefully that that will start coming back soon. So as people map their path out of lockdown, stores are reopening bit by bit. You know, we're trying to get uh, activity back. How does that path look for you? What, what's what's the next weeks and months have in store uh, from a getting back to whatever normal is? Yeah, um, I think for our UK businesses, it will be phased coming back in, taking a percentage of the office each time, making sure that we're keeping everybody safe. For the US office, we are still going to play it by ear, see how it goes. We'll see whether or not the, the protests that are going on at the moment will bring on another wave of, of coronavirus, which is, which is expected. But again, we'll make sure we have good spacing between everybody. Um, it's difficult because a lot of people commute via subway as well, which is uh, yes. not so much the case in, in South Manchester. A lot of people are driving in. So the commuting area is, is going to be more difficult. So we'll make sure that kind of everybody's comfortable. I think we've, we've shown as a business that we're resilient to working remotely so if needs be and people need to work remotely what will allow it I, I imagine but we'll play it by air and see how how the advice goes from from the state good well look every best wish with you know rebuilding a normal Aaron thank you very much for joining us yeah thank you very much thanks Aaron now we switch from beauty and wellness to white goods and electricals ao.com no less now I've been fascinated with this business for a long while and in particular how they've managed to grow in such a low-margin, cash-intensive sector by initially offering white-label services to retailers and then pivoting to become a direct-to-consumer brand. John Roberts, their founder 20 years ago, is still the CEO. John is engaging, straight-talking, and never ducks a direct question. 
I caught up with John when we were recording a keynote interview for IRX Engage. And so the sound is what I'll call COVID quality rather than the usual studio quality. John's comments, though, were too good not to share. So let's dive into the discussion, starting with the story of AO.com. John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, could you tell us a bit about AO, perhaps, uh, starting with the story of how you founded the business 20 years ago? Crikey. Uh, well, so 20 years ago, Christmas Eve, 1999, £1 bet with a pal in the pub, bet me that I wouldn't stop doing what I was doing and start a uh, an e-commerce business. Uh, we puffed about for a bit, decided to do that, called it Appliances Online, got proof of concept, three of us in an office, started with 100 grand. And we grew that business into what we then uh, became known as white labeling. But we called it rent a brand to start with. We provided a white label operation pretty much for most of the high street that wasn't in white goods. So the likes of Sainsbury's Boots, Next, B&Q, Marks and Spencer's, Debenhams, House of Fraser, a uh, good number of them not with us anymore, these brands, but uh, competing against a lot of other brands that are still not with us, like Powerhouse and Comet, Curry's still with us and John Lewis, so found a niche role as a specialist in the middle. Then in 2008, I think it was, Sainsbury's decided they wanted to leave. They were currently, at the time, 40% of our business, uh, and they went to move their business to Comet, uh, which turned out to be a, a wonderful move for them. And that forced us to then refocus back onto our own brand of appliances online, which we then rebranded in 2013, I think it was, into AO.com, uh, which unfortunately we don't know. It's quite an amusing story how all that came about. But um, it was it was actually a guy called Tony the Fridge who was running the Great North Run in the Northeast for 30 days with a fridge on his back, and he was on the Chris Evans Breakfast Show. It was the origins of how our brand name changed because we sponsored him, and he was on the front row of the Great North Run. And I knew we'd sponsored him. And he was stood next to Mo Farah and he had a fridge on his back. And even I couldn't see our brand on his T-shirt. So that was how we went from appliance online to AO.com. We then floated the business in 2014 for just over a billion quid to give us some funds to then move out of kitchen appliances into a broader electricals category. So we sell tellies and computers and pretty much anything with a plug on it now, all the way through to lawnmowers and internationalize the business. So we've got quite a significant business now in uh, in Germany as well, which has been an interesting and an educational journey. And so that's where we are in terms of total mm. scale as a business now. We have about a billion, just over a billion of total group sales. We have about 5,000 people in the business. We are vertically integrated. Uh, we run about 500 vans a day out on the road. We own all our own logistics. We have about a million square feet of warehousing full of physical stock. And we transship centrally over a network of about 30 outbases every night. We offer same day, next day, full installation services. Next day, put a TV on your wall, install a gas cooker, install an American fridge freezer, whatever it might be. We also have a trade business. We have quite a significant business now dealing with SMEs, kitchen shops, and mm. um, we deal with all major house builders now. So we're bringing disruption into that sector uh, we also have our own recycling business. So we recycle about 25% of all the fridges that come back in the UK. We also then, as an output of that, have our own plastics plant. And we hope that next year we will have full cycle economy appliances, where we will wow. make appliances out of the appliances that we bring back as a unique selling point for us. And because we control our fleet, we, we hope to be the first two-man distribution business to have a national electric fleet. 
Uh, so we're, we're doing quite a bit of work in that space as well. You seem to have made a shift from being a white label service to being a direct selling retail brand. Was that a difficult change? The simple answer to that, Ian, is we've always been everything. So we've always run our own brand. And we have one standard of service, which is excellence. So in our distribution network, we do third party deliveries for other companies as well on big stuff like Aldi and Costco and people like that. Uh, we do deliveries for competitors in our space as well, so we're not precious about that. And we can't differentiate our service. So it's not as though we could say, right, well, we're going to take some business on to deliver something for, I don't know, John Lewis, let's say, but give a mandate out to our drivers to say, oh, just give them an average service. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so we cost in the very best service, but we have a, a deep philosophical belief that the best service is actually the most profitable service. So it's a crude terminology internally, but uh, shit is an expensive commodity to shovel. So if you don't produce it in the first place, if you don't create the problems, then you don't have to have call centers to deal with those problems. If you yeah. deliver on time, the customer won't chase you. If you communicate brilliantly with a customer through text and tracking and tracing, then you can deal with them in a much more scalable, automated way. Mm. So it has always been the case that we've only ever had one standard of service and we never differentiate. It's more the balance and the mix. And so we still now do third-party stuff. We still operate Boots' website for them. I think we still do some stuff for Next. And we do B2B stuff as well. So mm. when the driver turns up, he's an AO driver in a green van and he treats every single customer as if they were his grand. Simple as that. So, John, you've got a great quote attributed to you that the industry has changed 10 years within 10 weeks. Great phrase. What, if any, have been the changes that you've had to make at AO? Not a lot is the simple answer. Very much more of the same. We're a business that's built for the future and not trying to repurpose from a business from the past. And we're quite brutal on our own disruption internally and our own innovations. So it's very much more of the same harder and faster. So how do we put lots of extra logistics capability in? Well, we know how to do that. Uh, we do that through the difference between the low of February trading and the high of Black Friday. So we know how to do that. In terms of serving customers, this is a time to have a deeply invested culture in a business, not a time to build one. I say we're fortunate. I don't think we're fortunate. We invested in that over 20 years. It pays back in times like this. So, you know, we're able to just trust all our people. We moved 2,000 people to work from home in three days. I've never seen as many laptops. We didn't have to stick stickers on them. We didn't have to do all the things and controls that lots of other businesses did. We just said to our guys, look, you know, We've got to go and work from home. There's loads of things we're going to have to work out as we go. Let's go and have some fun doing it. And everybody rises to the challenge. Nobody came and said, well, what am I going to get paid for this? Or, well, what does that mean for me on this? It was a, how do we come together? Our first priority is to keep customers safe and our staff safe and to serve those customers. That's just in the core of our DNA of, you know, we have two measures. One is treat every single customer as if they were your grand. Everybody knows what that means. It's really simple. And then when you're making decisions, we give huge autonomy to spend company money in whatever that means. And so when they're doing that, they have one metric to measure that against is if you're having dinner with your mum tonight and you explain to your mum the decisions that you made, would your decision make your mum proud? And everybody's mum's mm -hmm. got a slightly different barometer. Um, but broadly inside, we all know what that means. 
you know, and you know if you're going to tell her something, whether you know how she's going to look at you. So think about that when you're making the decision. And if people genuinely deeply live those two principles, loads of other stuff just takes care of itself. Yeah. So in these real moments when things happen, we have a sort of immune system as a business that deals with things. And actually, from a personal point of view, it's always brilliant because the best thing I can do is get out of the way and just leave people to get on with things. The last thing they want is interference. And so freedom and autonomy works in that. But I agree, five years has collapsed down into five weeks. Uh, 66 days to form a habit. Stores have been locked down for 84. I think there's going to be huge complication. Leicester is just going to be the first. I think the challenges of turning different services on and off in different regions week by week with different, even whether you do deliver and then do you deliver with services and when do you turn those on and when do you turn those off and what capabilities. Again, what you need is tons of flexibility. For the first two or three weeks, we didn't offer services unless if it was Mrs. Miggins on the 14th floor of a block of flats and she's 83 and she's got a fridge freezer and she keeps her insulin in it, well, a doorstep delivery is not much good for her. We need our drivers to exercise judgment that the right thing in that situation is to get that fridge freezer up and, and plugged in and get the old one out. You can't put that on an order form. You just have to trust people's judgment. Well, John, that's a great note on which to end. Uh, thank you very much for taking uh, this chunk of time out of your day to join us. No problem, pleasure. Well, I feel we only just scratched the surface there. So we've invited John to come back again, and we look forward to learning even more then. So that's our episode of Lockdown Listening. We'll be back again soon. And as ever, do let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover, people you'd like us to interview, or of course, volunteer yourself. Don't be shy. But until the next episode, keep well, mask up, and wash those hands. 